0: Good morning, good afternoon or good evening my finest friends. Welcome to episode 10 of season 4 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue song by song, album by album and includes conversations with musicians, fans and people connected with Tom along the way. Um, I'm currently recording this while I'm looking after my sick little kitty cat, Eli, who had a three-night stay in the hospital to treat a urinary tract infection. Fun, fun, fun. Um, he's all doped up and staggering around the house in a very confused days, but he did have a good two-hour nap on Dad uh, and has been eating and drinking plenty, so I'm positive about a full recovery. My wife and youngest daughter are away at the lake, and my eldest has gone on her first unparented road trip five hours away to Edmonton. So it's just me, the animals, and Tom's music for the rest of the week. I think I'll manage. Anyway, you don't come here for my diary entries. You come to listen to a discussion about Tom's music. And today's episode covers the last track from Hard Promises. You can still change your mind. I've included a link in the episode notes if you want to give it a listen before we start. Once you've done that, we can dig in. <laughs> Mike's tribute to Brian Wilson is the rhetorical question that Paul Zolo poses to Tom in his book, Conversations with Tom Petty. Tom responds, I thought it sounded like something that could have been in the Beach Boys catalogue somewhere, very different from what we normally do. And I think that's one statement sums up hard promises very neatly. This album is when the, the songwriting butterfly fully emerged from the chrysalis of the first three albums, but especially Damn the Torpedoes. Tom says, we were trying to find some different ground. We didn't want to make Damn the Torpedoes again. So not to head into a full album recap, which I'll be doing with my friend John Paulson in a couple of weeks, but if you think about Night Watchmen, Something Big, Insider, The Criminal Kind and this track, it really is uncharted territory for the band and a record that expanded their sound and their potential avenues of exploration more than any other had to this point. The comparison to the Beach Boys is completely lost on me though, as for some reason the one band that I just can't figure out or I don't relate to at all. If anything, I get more of a sort of an ELO vibe from this song, which is quite a coincidence given who would go on to produce three albums for Tom. In the album rap episode for Down the Torpedoes, John Paulson and I discussed the incongruity of the intro for Louisiana Rain, and the final track from Hard Promises also includes an unconnected, arguably superfluous 13 seconds of programmed synth noise. Uh, there 's no mention of who or how this was played or on what in the liner notes of the album, and again it feels out of place, especially for such a soulful ballad. The two thousand and eighteen remaster, which appears on the American Treasure compilation, cuts this portion out entirely and comes straight into that alternating root third, fifth broken chord structure and you know the way this is played is a structure as old as popular music is, you know whether it 's the bangle 's eternal flame or in a slightly modified mode, let it be the rhythm of the piano is playing the roots, third, and fifth notes of the chord in some combination. Um, With this song, it's anchoring the fifth as the root, and then playing the root and third on the beat. It's the first time the Heartbreakers would use this shape, though, and off the top of my head, I can't actually think of another example of it. We have a four-bar instrumental intro, all in C major, which is curiously not a guitarist key. Tom tells Paul Zolo that the song is really mostly his, you know, and by his he means Mike Campbell. Um, He wrote the whole arrangement. It's a great piece of music, and it would have to be laid at his door. So I wonder if Mike actually wrote this on piano initially. You know, again, another good question to ask him because it's, again, not a guitar song really at all, rhythmically or in terms of the the chord progression, the the guitar really just adds in colour. There's also some heavily echoed or processed percussion in the background to the intro. It sounds a little like a very lightly struck conga or something that it comes in on the one count. Um, And Stan adds some big cymbal washes, Mike's very gently sliding around that left channel, and as the first lyrics come in, Ron then enters the song with a very simple bass part. Tom comes in with the vocal, and it's all very languid and easy, with no real attack from anyone. After the first half of the verse, we then can hear what sounds like a synth, which comes in again halfway through. Um, And I'm thinking that might be the ARP. Um, It could also be that Mike is listed as playing the harmonium on the album, but it doesn't really sound like harmonium to me. I guess it could be, uh, if it was to run through an effects unit or something. Um, But again, I'm, I'm not too sure exactly where that's coming from. Um, it's definitely not... I, well, I would say definitely not. I don't think it's the organ. Um, as the song moves into the chorus, that keyboard section swells into that glorious change from minor back to major, and the piano is consistent throughout the verses and the chorus, keeping that rhythmic progression gently pressing forward. As the song breaks into the bridge, Ben Mott moves to playing a double-time arpeggio and allowing Stan and Ron to really lead the rhythm. In that last chorus, building to the transition, uh, the piano moves up another octave and plays a wonderful sort of C7 arpeggio and then adds in some chords into the mix later on. The percussion is interesting in this one, too. Uh, and apart from the bridge, Stan is backed right off and playing very little other than a simple boom, 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 cha, beat, and adding in some very reverb-heavy floor tom fills from the chorus back out to the verse. There is also what sounds like it's either uh, a tambourine being hit or it, it sounds more to me like sleigh bells. It's almost got that Christmas feel to it, and it's being hit with a stick or something, which, again, just gives it that sort of very beautiful atmospheric feeling. Um, You know, likewise, as well as Stan sort of keeping things simple, Ron is also keeping them simple, playing mainly on the first beat of each bar before walking up the scale into the chorus. Again, in the bridge, though, he starts to add in a lot more to the groove and plays a beautifully timed slide in the oh, you don't have to wait line. And then again, coming back out of the bridge, it's all very mellifluous and relaxing, wending its way lazily through the song rather than driving it forward. The guitars in this song are very muted, and especially the lead just provides a bit of texture and colour that the keyboards usually would in most of the other Heartbreaker songs. But this being a keyboard forward song, the guitars are there just to add a few phrases, you know, here and there. And it's Mike again using his slide and just being very gentle where sliding up a you know a third or a fifth. And so those phrases come to the fore in places, you know, between sections, between verse and chorus whatever. Um and the lap steel feel meshes perfectly with that synth piano vibe. There's also a great little change of tone to a crunchy, distorted guitar in the outro with about 10 seconds to go, which just closes the song on a slightly harder edge as it fades out. Alrighty, it's time for some petty trivia. Last week's question was this. Ron Blair left the band after the recording of Hard Promises, but which was the first album he appeared on after his departure? This one threw quite a few of you. Maybe the wording was less obvious than I thought, but the question wasn't on which album did Ron rejoin the band. Had it been, you could make the argument that it was The Last DJ, which he jumped into recording sessions for late on, or you could say that it was Mojo, which was his first full album back with the band. However, the question was, which was the first album that Ron appeared on? And, as a couple of people correctly identified, Ron played bass on Between Two Worlds from Long After Dark, the very next album after Hard Promises. He also guested on the final track of Southern Accidents, The Best of Everything. Your question for this week is this. At the very first Farm Aid concert in 1985, as well as Tom and the Heartbreakers, which artist appeared whose career had also been profoundly impacted by the work of promoter John Scott? Okay, back to the song. As with everything else in this one, Tom chooses a vocal delivery that has some facets that we haven't really heard anywhere else on the album. He's in full southern draw mode, especially during the verses. And then in the chorus, he comes back much closer to his, what I would call his crooner voice. Um, During the bridge, he's really pinching his airflow to create a strained, almost nasal attack that, again, I don't remember anywhere else on Our Promises. He sings this one pretty straight and pretty clean and sort of waits for the last chorus to move away from the melody line that when he sings, everything's going to be all right, where he steps up a tone rather than down, just to add a little bit of variety. The backing vocals in this one, which centre around those harmonised oohs, are provided by Stevie Nicks, Laurie Nicks, Stevie's sister-in-law, and Sharon Ceylani. Um And that very ethereal, shadowy production on those background vocals always reminds me a little bit of I'm Not In Love by 10CC. It's just that way they're very breathy and, and sort of dropped right back. Um, when you buy a modern synth, there's always a, a voice patch that you can use to play those types of harmonies, and they sound typically very similar to the way that those three ladies sing together. Laurie and Sharon have been a part of Stevie's life for decades and perfectly complement her style, so it makes sense that they would come in to record those lines with Stevie. It definitely gives the song a very different feel from how it would have sounded with Stan and Tom singing those high harmonies, and maybe it's one of the reasons it was never played live, as the song does need that texture to really shine as it does. The lyrics to this one are fairly abstract and approachable for anyone. The sentiment is fantastic. No matter how things are going, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how the world seems right now, you can still change your mind. You can still change your feelings. The first verse is an introspective look at how people try to face the world alone and are often afraid to ask for help. The second deals with the idea that sometimes people set their expectations too high and can be disappointed with the life they imagine rather than the one they actually have. The choruses shatter these preconceptions before the bridge puts the final stamp on this, you know, with it gets harder by the minute, it gets harder every day. Listen to me, darling, or you don't have to wait. And Tom would revisit this idea of, you know, the non-permanence of bad decisions or past hardships on 2006's final solo record, Highway Companion, with the song Square One. Where that song is much more personal, this one is more oblique and invites the listener to look at the invitation to change from their perspective rather than the singer's. One of the things that I really enjoy musically about this song is that key change at the end of the chorus to E major before the song drops back to C for the next verse. It's a lovely way to move between those two sections and C to E always sounds quite dramatic and atmospheric. It really adds a lovely dynamic to an otherwise fairly simple chord progression. As with last week's track, The Criminal Kind, I couldn't find a record of You Can Still Change Your Mind ever being played live. Again, this could possibly be due to it, you know, maybe it not working the way Tom would have liked without Stevie, Laurie and Sharon, but more likely because it's a very mellow, easy groove and not something that would ordinarily fit into a rock and roll show set. Tom does, however, tell Paul Zolo that he thought it might have been a good single. He says, that was when I was realising a ballad couldn't be a single and they were probably right because there's not a lot of rhythm to it, but I just thought it was so beautiful. It would have sounded great on the radio. It's hard to say whether the song would have worked as a single, but if you fast forward to the mid to late 80s and the hair metal explosion, every one of those rock bands had a slow ballad and many of them charted really highly. So, you know, maybe it would have worked. Um, I also wanted to thank um, at s 2 sp. I don't know if there's a like a funky way of saying that, maybe there is, um, on Instagram, for telling me that Benmont also used this song to close out his set on October 28th, 2017, which was the first public appearance of any heartbreaker after Tom's passing. I couldn't find any footage of that performance from the Largo in Hollywood um, online, but I did find a video of him playing it at the Iridium Jazz Club in New York on uh, November 8th of 2017. I'll include a link to that in the episode notes as it's a really beautiful, delicate acoustic version of the song which Ben Mott introduces by saying I'm going to play a song by two of the greatest songwriters who've ever lived. If you're familiar with it, I'm very glad. What a wonderful sentiment. Okay folks, that's all for this week. I think this song probably isn't as loved as much as it maybe should be. You know, it lacks a guitar riff, it's a very slow tempo number, and it also stands in stark contrast to everything on this album. And again, to my ear, sounds a bit more ELO, or even solo-era McCartney in The Bridge. Um, like Louisiana Rain from the last album, it's a downward gear shift to the album tempo-wise, even more so in this case, actually. Uh, but I think it finishes off a, a brilliant follow-up to Damn the Torpedoes very nicely. And for me, it's a delightful ambient experience that doesn't require you to pay close attention, doesn't challenge your musical palette at all, but is an entirely pleasant four minutes to spend in the company of a soaringly beautiful melody with a hopeful lyrical message. So I'm going to give this one a 7 out of 10 to close the album. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so, as I have for the last, well, too many weeks, um, if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do that, you know, until until I don't need to do that. Um, the Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. If you like nerding out over your favourite bands, go check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet, and see if there's a podcast dedicated to your favourite artist. Other than Tom Petty, obviously. Um, Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and please leave a review or a rating if you haven't done that already. It would be great if you left a five-star rating, but you know what? If you leave me a three or a four and give me a reason, I'm perfectly happy with that too. Um, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit all the official channels: so the official YouTube channel, go to Spotify, go to Apple, anywhere that's carrying his music legally. Um, and if you want to buy merchandise, please go to tompetty.com for all the official stuff. Um, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. If you're not already a member, um, as they're excellent fan communities, and they are well worth spending your time in. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind try to say I love you to someone at least once a day, stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to share a wonderful conversation I had with Tom Petty Nation mainstay and all round fantastic human being, Janet Lovell. Bye-bye.